0: Welcome to the Hatbury House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from the words of Henry Morris, a Christian and a scientist who lived in the last century. He wrote this book in 1951, I believe. It's called The Bible and Modern Science. We've been going through and seeing how he decimated the arguments of the evolutionists and others who call themselves scientists This is uh, the the third part of the chapter on the theory of evolution, where he's talking about paleontological proofs of evolution, the the skeletal remains and things like that. The the most famous uh, is is about the horse, the horse Eohippus, they called him. The, The horse pedigree, usually drawn up in popular evolutionary textbooks, does not prove evolution across family boundaries but only within the family. The very earliest member, Eohippus, is quite obviously as much a member of the horse family as the living equus, the living horse that we have today. Eohippus was small, about the size of a fox, with four toes on the front foot and three on the hind. The modern horse, of course, has only one toe on each foot, with possible vestiges of others. There are other minor differences between Aohippus and Equus, which, however, are mainly adaptations or designs as a result of their difference in size. Between these two have been ranged about a dozen others found as fossils. Some of these had the same toe arrangements as Aeohippus. Some had three toes on each foot, and still others have the side toes reduced to splints as in the modern horse, excuse me. However, all these animals are said to have lived in the tertiary or late in geologic time. They're found near the surface in the relatively unconsolidated tertiary deposits. The different forms are not found superimposed one over the other, but at widely separated localities, often continents apart, no gradual evolution from one to the other is evident, but only a series of sudden jumps at best. There is further no clue to the origin of Eohippus, who was as highly developed, specialized, and fitted to his environment as is the modern horse. All things considered, it seems quite as plausible to say that each of the several genera may have been living simultaneously, perhaps as mutant variants of the originally created horse kind, and that they, in common with many other zoological inhabitants of a former age, have for one reason or another since become extinct. Even if one of these forms actually should prove to be the ancestor of the modern horse, and such has not yet been proved by any means, The loss of one or more toes is obviously to be attributed to a mutation, and in common with all known mutations is in the nature of a deterioration rather than an advance. As to size, it is obvious that there are many families in the present world containing members differing in size quite as much as Eohippus and Equus. Furthermore, many fossil horses have been found in many regions, fully as large and sometimes larger than the modern horse. Many of them seem, in fact, quite identical with the modern horse, though others have three toes and other differences. All things considered, this supposed best demonstration of evolution falls more than somewhat short of being such a demonstration at all. And the same sort of criticisms could be brought against the supposed evolutionary pedigrees of the camel, the elephant, and other animals, which are sometimes, but with less confidence, offered as evidence in popular textbooks. There remains, then, the problem of fossil men that have been classed as pre-human. These bear especially hard on our belief in the Bible story of man's creation, and so are particularly interesting. The evolutionary reconstruction one sees in museums are very impressive, but are highly imaginative and speculative. There has never yet been found a complete skeleton, or even a complete skull, of an ape-man or a man-ape although large numbers of remains of true apes and true men have been found. Only a few bone fragments have been found, which could be imagined into any sort of lower species of man. A strange situation in view of the multiplied millions of ape men that must have lived and died during the course of evolutionary history. But there is no scarcity of theories, And there are numerous schools of thought today among anthropologists as to where the various fossils of proto-men fit into the assumed history of human evolution. The most notorious of all is the famous uh, Pithecanthropus erectus found in Java in 1891-1892, the Java man. This find consisted of a part of a skull cap a fragment of a left thigh bone, and three molar teeth. And that was it. These parts were not found together, but within a range of some fifty feet. They were not found at the same time, but within the space of a year apart. They were found in an old river bed, far below high water mark, mingled with much debris and many bones of extinct animals. In recent years, there have been other finds in Java which have affected the status of Pithecanthropus, so that he is now regarded by most present-day anthropologists as essentially identical with modern man. (laughs) The original skull has come to be regarded as that of a small woman. The femur is admittedly completely human in form. The teeth were probably simian and did not belong with the other remains at all. The Neanderthal race of cavemen has been more widely publicized, perhaps, than any other of these ancient men, except possibly Pithecanthropus. The original Neanderthal man consisted of a skullcap, which was attested by various experts to be that of an ape-man, or a black man, an idiot, or a modern Cossack, or an early German, and several other things. Since that time, a number of other skeletons and fragments have been found in Europe, and at other points around the Mediterranean. Many of these are very questionable, but some evidently belong to the Neanderthal race, which is now acknowledged by probably the majority of paleontologists to be identical in species with modern man. Fairly frequently, perfect Neanderthal types appear among modern peoples. It seems most probable that the Neanderthals represented a degenerate rather than a developing race. The Peking Man is represented by quite a number of individuals found in caves near Peking, China, the first in 1929. This was also first acclaimed as an important missing link. With the discovery of more remains, however, it's been found that some of them are quite modern. Others are similar to the Neanderthal type, and there are none of the skeletal features which cannot be duplicated in modern races or individuals. In recent years, much attention—this is in the, again in the 1950s—has been centered on the various fossils found in South Africa by Dart, Broom, and Leakey. Most of these are grouped under the name Australopithecines, and some are dated as as much as three million years ago. Well, although some of their features have been assumed to be pre-human. They nevertheless were probably true men. There is much evidence that they fashioned and used tools and weapons as well as fire. It's interesting that the oldest of these men, Homo habilis, is also most nearly like modern man. Except for his small size, he could very well pass for a modern man. It is significant that these and other fossil proto-men are individually represented only by small fragments of bone, and also that all are dated within the Pleistocene epoch. However, the unknown hypothetical common ancestors of apes and men is dated in the Eocene, about 70 million years earlier, and with all the intermediate forms still missing. There are others that might be discussed, but those already mentioned are the best known and are supposed to provide the best evidence for human evolution. This whole subject seems replete with varying opinions and ever-changing interpretations on the part of the different experts involved. The past 60 or so years have been witnessed a number of uh, have even witnessed a number of outright boners on the part of several such authorities, such as the elephant's knee bone discovered in Java in 1926, acclaimed for some time as a new skull of Pithecanthropus. Then there was the Hesperopithecus tooth found in 1922 in Nebraska Which was accepted so widely as evidence of man's antiquity that it was introduced by the evolutionists as expert testimony in the famous evolution trial in Tennessee, the Scopes trial, 1925. Well, two years later, however, the complete skeleton was found and proved rather to have belonged to an extinct pig. The so called Colorado man. also constructed from a tooth, was later found to have belonged to the horse family. An ape-man skull, also found in Colorado, exhibited as, as such for a time in a museum, was actually the skull of a pet monkey, buried just a few years previously. A bone found near Seattle, identified as an ancient human fibula, turned out to be part of a bear's hind leg. And finally, the famous Piltdown Man, regarded until recently as one of the three or four most important of the missing links in man's evolution, has now formally uh, been pronounced to have been a clever hoax, which fooled all the anthropological specialists for 40 years before being exposed. It is of great significance that many fossilized skeletons of modern man have been found at many different locations, and often with every indication of being as old or older than the supposedly less advanced hominids that have been unearthed. Some of the more famous of these include the men of Swanscombe, Galley Hill, Grimaldi, Olderway, Foxhall, Wadjak, Fantashevat and others, all of whom are practically indistinguishable from modern man and which yet give evidence of at least as great geologic age as any of the other presumably more primitive types. Some of the outstanding present-day anthropologists have therefore adopted the theory that modern man existed contemporaneously with Neanderthal man and the others and that all represent variant races evolved from some as yet undiscovered ancestor. On the other hand, there is no real evidence against the far more reasonable theory adopted by some uh, that the Neanderthals, uh, Peking man, so on, represent degenerate races, uh, descended from Homo sapiens as a result of mutation isolation, and so on. In fact, there is some evidence that modern man himself is a somewhat deteriorated descendant of his ancestors. The Cro-Magnon race of men who inhabited Europe about the same time as the Neanderthals are well known to have been superior to modern man, both in physical size and in brain capacity. Since practically nothing is really known about the actual physiologic characteristics and physical appearance of any of these proto-men, there's no reason why the Australopithecines and the Pithecanthropines, or Homo erectus, as they are also called, as well as the Neanderthals and others, could not be regarded as extinct races of mankind, all descendants of Adam. Considering the wide variety of present-day human types, the slight additional differences indicated by the fossils would seem to be well within the range of potential genetic variation and mutations for man. These facts serve to add emphasis to a principle already alluded to several times, namely that developmental evolution is not the universal law of biology, but rather Deterioration or degeneration. As we have seen, there is no real evidence of progressive evolution, but very much evidence for deteriorative evolution or, at best, biologic stability. We've already seen in the previous chapter that this law of degeneration or entropy increase is universally operative throughout the physical and chemical realms it now seems also to pervade the biologic realm in fact this truth is beginning so to disturb evolutionists that several significant papers have appeared recently in scientific journals attempting to harmonize the concept of evolution with the second law of thermodynamics but with but with no real success more and more it appears that there is one great degenerative principle pervading all nature of which the law of entropy is merely its special manifestation in physical phenomena, phenomena. this law has been called by dr r e d clark the law of morpholysis or morpholysis meaning loosing of structure in other words there is a universal tendency from the highly organized to the disorganized from the ordered to the disordered. Never is there an inherent, natural, undirected, unaided trend toward increase of order or organization. The natural tendency is always downward. In biology, an important example is found in the very agency supposed to bring about evolution, that is, gene mutations and chromosome changes or aberrations. All such changes are harmful, or at best, indifferent, as far as the organism is concerned. They seem clearly to represent a breaking down of the original ordered arrangement of the genes in the germ cells, brought about through penetration of the germ cell by x-rays, or cosmic radiation, or some other disorganizing medium. In some way, the genetic structure is disarranged, And since, if the mutations are not actually lethal, they are both harmful and hereditary. The eventual result is a deterioration of the racial stock. This would most likely account for the fact that most of the living creatures of the present are represented in the fossil record by larger, more highly developed members of the same species. It might likewise partially account for the extinction of so many once highly developed f- forms of uh, living creatures that once inhabited the earth, but are now known only as fossils. Furthermore, it would explain the phenomenon of the atrophy of once valuable organs until they become vestigial or even disappear. Thus, it seems evident that if evolution has taken place on any large scale at all, that is, of course, progressive evolution. It must have done so at complete variance with the indications of all modern genetic research and indeed with all basic physical law. Most of the preferred evidence for evolution can be better interpreted in the light of the law of deterioration and with far better scientific basis. Well, that's the end of that chapter. We're going to talk next time about the flood, modern science and the flood. You can believe your Bible, but you can believe it because the Holy Spirit is in you, making you believe it. When he's in you, he's going to agree with his word. But isn't it good to read and hear confirmations of this sort also? Nothing can deny the word of God, but many things can confirm it. I better quit while I still have a voice. Thank you so much for being with us. Do look around the site. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.